sink them in our souls. Lord, I pray that we would encounter the living God this morning through your word. And I pray for your enablement. I pray for your strength. I pray for your wisdom and guidance. Lord, I, I dare not try to preach on my own. And so I pray that you would weave me in and around and through this passage in just like a work of art and make this a thing of beauty that we not just look at, but that we live and teach us, Lord, teach us. We long for your word. We need your word. And so may we look back on this time and later with communion and just be so thankful for it. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I still believe that God is very tired. He is very tired of my good intentions. That God is tired of your good intentions. That God is tired of the talk. We're so good about talking. We're so good about making promises. And oftentimes you and I, we struggle with the follow through. It's time to move past the good intentions. That's what we learned a couple weeks ago, and that's what we're going to learn as well again today. And Israel is going to teach us that God is not just about good intentions. He wants to see some actions. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the book of Nehemiah again. And uh, the Israelites started us off on this road of commitment. They had been derailed. Now they're getting their acts together, and they're saying, God, we are recommitting ourselves to you. And now we see them continue that recommitment in their lives. And there are many things that they teach us about this recommitment. Israel was a nation that was finally going to do something. Their their disobedience had made a mess of their lives and their nation, and they were paying dearly for it. You and I know what that's like. Disobedience can make a mess of our lives, and we pay dearly for it. Well, they're ready to be committed. They're ready to change. And there's no more talking but doing. It's kind of like Home Depot. The power of doing here. It would make a good church slogan, wouldn't it? More saving, more doing. That's what a church should be doing. More saving and more doing. Well, in Nehemiah chapter 10, we saw some doing going on two weeks ago. They were truly changing. And, and, and we saw actually chapter 9, verse 38 through ten seventeen that they decided we're going to go public. God, we're going to be held accountable. We're not going to keep this private. And their leaders put their names on an official document. And the people followed suit, standing with their leaders. And then in chapter 10, verse 28 and 29, they they committed to complete obedience. Not half-hearted, not halfway with the word of God. All of it. God's word preeminent. We're going to follow your word. Then in Nehemiah 10.30, they purified their relationships. They talked about how they were going to separate from the world and make no more excuses, and they made their relationships holy in the eyes of God. And those things are what commitment is all about. Going public, complete obedience to his word, purifying their relationships. Well, today, we see that their commitment didn't stop there. It continued to go. And we're going to see that starting in verse 31. But before we get there, I want you to be reminded that sometimes we think we're committed, but we're not near as committed as we should be. And sometimes we talk about being committed, but we're really not as committed as God wants us to be. And just because you and I come to church on a Sunday does not mean we're committed to God. 
And just because we sing some songs on a screen does not mean we're committed to God. And just because we bring a Bible in does not mean we're committed to God. God wants to see some actions. And he wants us to understand what true commitment really looks like. What we learned this week is that recommitment returns to a life of honor. That's the first thing we see. Verse 31. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. We will forgo the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. They tell God very clearly, we are getting serious. This is real. They decide to honor God on the Sabbath day. We, we know that's the fourth of the top ten commandments, Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work. Seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, nor you or your son or your daughter, your male, your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It was to be a day of rest for the Israelites. Physical rest for them, their family, their servants, their animals. Mental rest rest from the toils of life. It was to be a day of contemplation, to focus on the spiritual, not just the physical, to focus on worship, not just work. And it was this beautiful pattern that God gave. He didn't need it. He's all-powerful. He didn't need rest. He knew that you needed rest. He knew that I needed rest. And it was a gift of restoration for our minds and for our bodies. And it is still a good pattern today. From the early church, Christians have made Sunday that day of rest, that day of worship. For the Jews, the Sabbath was Saturday because God rested on the last day of the week. For Christians, the Sabbath, so to speak, is Sunday, not because God rested, but because God rose on the first day. Now, you may be asking, well, Pastor Scott, we we know Hebrews 10.25 says, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. Pastor Scott, where were you? You weren't here last Sunday. Where were you? I was in downtown Chicago cheering on my wife and daughter as they ran the half marathon and just, woohoo, rooting them on. You can do it, babe. And, uh, and then I was back here Sunday night worshiping with God's people because Sunday is a day of worship. For our family. Now, Jesus made it very clear. It's not about being legalistic. Mark 2, 27, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But setting aside a day to focus on the Lord is important. To worship, to pray, to rest our mind and our body and our soul. But I want you to understand what else the Israelites are saying here. They're saying, God, we're tired of cutting corners, spiritually speaking. We're tired of looking for loopholes in your law to make it fit for us. We're we're tired of that. Lord, we're going to get serious. See, as for the peoples of the land, verse 31, who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath day or any holy day. So they had these people driving through the neighborhood, calling God's children to come and buy, who really could care less about God. They just wanted God's people's money. That's all they wanted. 
And so the Israelites came under conviction because they felt like they were fudging on the Sabbath. You know, they technically weren't buying. They technically weren't selling. What's the harm? This is what they decided. They said, God, our focus has not been you. Our focus has been trying to get something that's on sale. Our focus is trying to stock our pantry. Our focus is shopping till we drop. And you know what? That's not what this day is supposed to be about. They said, God, we've been fudging on the Sabbath. It wasn't about you, God. It's been about shopping and buying and goods and services. And so this is what they decided to tell God. The economy is not going to drive everything we do anymore. And God, business isn't going to consume my mind and my time and my energy anymore. You're going to consume me. And God, money isn't going to be my God. As a matter of fact, you can't make God and money. You can't serve them both. Matthew 6, 24 No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one or love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So you know what they were saying? They were saying to God, God, we're not gonna cut corners anymore. We're gonna clean up the edges, the spiritual edges of our life and we're gonna tuck in the spiritual corners of our life and no more sloppy spirituality. No more sloppy spirituality. And maybe that's what you need to say to God this morning. No more sloppy spirituality. I'm going to tuck in my spiritual corners and I'm going to clean up those spiritual edges and I'm going to focus on my faith. Not my finances, not my hobbies, not this, not something else. So they were going to decide to honor God on the Sabbath day and they decided to honor God not only on the Sabbath day but the Sabbath year. Look at verse 31. We will forego the crops the seventh year. Do you know what they were saying? We're going to take our land that we usually farm for six years and let it lay idle on the seventh year. That's what Exodus 23 taught them to do. You shall sow your land for six years, gather in its yield, but on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie follow. You, shall, you are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. We're going to let it just lay. We're not, we're not going to farm it. We're not going to reap from it. Now, there are some very important principles that they were learning with this, and they teach us. One was a principle of ecology. The land needed rest. Natural replenishment, let the land lie, let it recover, let it be restored of its resources. There was not only a lesson in ecology, there was also a lesson in faith. They would go an entire year without planting or reaping, and they would trust God to provide. In other words, they were going to take God at his word. Isn't that a novel thing for God's people to do? Take God at his word. Leviticus 25, 21, God told them what would happen. Then I will so order my blessing for you in the sixth year that it will bring forth crop for three years. When you're sowing the eighth year, you can still eat off the old things from the crop, eating the old until the ninth year when its crop comes in. God said, if you work those six years, that sixth year, I will give you so much food, it'll be enough for three years. So you won't have to worry about the seventh year anyway. They were going to live out their faith. They said, we're going to trust God. See, obedience to God's word involves a lot of faith and a lot of trust. I'm going to say it again. Obedience to God's word involves a lot of faith and a lot of trust. That's why some of us here today choose not to obey. Because you don't trust God. 
You have that area in your life. You know what God says about that relationship. You're still not obeying him because you don't trust him. You know what God's word says about your finances. You're not obeying him because you don't trust him. You know what he says about filling the line. You're not obeying him because you don't trust him. And that's why you forfeit seeing the hand of Almighty God in your life. That's why you don't see him at work in your life anymore. And you wonder why God hasn't shown up. He shows up for those who trust him. See, so you've decided to take it all on your own, and you're going to make it happen, and you're going to make it work, and you're going to get, you got your hands over everything. You've squeezed God out of the picture. God, give me that steering wheel. No wonder you can't see God at work. You've stopped trusting his word, and you've stopped giving God an opportunity to prove himself God. Maybe what you need to do is stand back and confess your sin and say, God, I want you to prove that you're God. I'm sorry that I have not even been giving you that chance. I'm sorry, I've been trying to do it all and I haven't been trusting your word. Maybe that's the recommitment that God is calling you back to this morning, to finally trust him again and watch him work again and bring that adventure and that faith and that joy back into your spiritual life that used to be there. But you've told God, I've got it, God. I'll handle it from here. No, no more. Invite God back in and trust his word. And by the way, Psalm 127 is a great verse for you who are workaholics. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. You know what God says? You can get up early all you want. You can go to bed late all you want. You can work seven days a week all you want. I can bless you more through the night while you're sleeping than you could ever do on your own. I'll take care of you. Just trust me. There was a lesson in ecology. There was a lesson in faith. There was also a very important lesson in caring for the needy. Because a certain amount of the land, even though they didn't plant it, would automatically reseed itself. And there'd be a modest natural harvest that would take place. And then the poor in the community were invited to come to your land and reap the benefits. We see that in Exodus 23. You shall sow your land for six years and gather in its yield, but on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lay fallow. Why? So that the needy of your people may eat. And whatever they leave, the beast of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. So they said, God, we're, we're going to honor you on the Sabbath day. We're going to honor you on the Sabbath year. Look at verse 31, the end of it. We're going to honor you, God, by honoring other people. We'll forgo the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. This was a command by God to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 15.1. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a remission of debts. This is the manner of remission. Every creditor shall release what he has loaned to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor and his brother because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. Some believe it just means a postponement of paying off the debts for one year. Just saying, hey, you don't, you don't owe me a thing, take a year off. I believe the passage teaches even more. It's a complete cancellation of the debts. For Israelite to Israelite, this was taught. 
What would it do? It would lift the burden of crippling financial pressure in people's lives, and it would help them get back on their feet financially, and it would give them a needed reprieve because people do desperate things when they're under the weight of enormous financial pressure. And for the Israelites, they would even sell themselves into slavery. They would sell their children into slavery. What was God teaching about this release of debts? God was teaching some important lessons. One was to value people more than things. Start valuing people more than things. Start caring for people more than you care about your profit, your bottom line. And by the way, he was also teaching them again to trust God, that he'll make up the difference. I'll make up the difference. I will take care of you. I will bless. God was cultivating a spirit of grace and mercy and forgiveness among his people and their relationships with their fellow Jews. To be gracious as God has been gracious to us. To be gracious as God has been gracious to you. To be forgiving as God has been forgiving toward us. Maybe that's part of the meaning of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew six twelve. Say it with me. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Recommitment, it's more than talk. It returns to this life of honor and a life of trust and obedience. Recommitment's more than talks. Recommitment, say it with me, puts its money where its mouth is. Now, I'm gonna talk straight with you. Not like I usually don't, but I'm gonna talk straight with you. Listen carefully. Some of you aren't gonna like it. Too bad, get over it. Um, if you don't give to God, you're not committed to God. I want you to understand that. If you don't give to God, you are not committed to God. And I'm talking financial giving. I'm talking money. You don't give to God, you're not committed to God. I don't care how much you talk about being committed to God. I, I don't care how much you think you're committed to God. Because true commitment to God impacts every area of our life, including your checkbook, including your checking account. And by the way, your checking account don't lie. It shows who you're committed to. It shows what you're committed to. And for some of you, it shows that you're a lot more committed to golf than you are to God. For others, it shows that you're more committed to your car than you are to your creator. For others, it shows that you're so committed to entertainment, your music and your movies and your whatever, you're not committed to the eternal one. Some of you are so committed to your clothes, your wardrobe, you're committed to your house, you're committed to everything, you're really not committed to God. Just just look at the statement in your checking account. These guys said, no more God. We're going to prove our commitment is real because when our commitment is real, it impacts us financially. Verse 32, look what we read. We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of God, for the showbread, the continual grain offering, the continual burn offering, the Sabbath, the new moon, the appointed times, the holy things, the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and all the work of the house of our God. And they use the word obligated. Obligation. In other words, giving was not going to be hit or miss anymore. 
Giving was not going to be, well, when I feel like it, maybe I'll do it. Or when we have extra left over, maybe I'll give. They recognized the necessity of responsible giving and said, no more playing games. We're going to be committed. What else do we learn about committed people? They practice tithing. That's what we see in the Old Testament. Look at verse 37 and 38. The tithe of the ground of the Levites. See, it wasn't just once a year. The tithes in the rural towns, the tithes, the Levites, shall bring the tenth of the tithes to the house of the Lord four times. This, this word tithe is, meant, is, is spoken. What does it mean? It means tenth. That's what it meant. Tithe means tenth. You may say, well, nowhere in the New Testament are we commanded to tithe. True. You won't find a verse in the New Testament that says you must tithe. But I think Jesus was very clear in Matthew 23, 23, speaking to the religious leaders. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You've neglected the heavier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But all these things you should have done, read it with me, without neglecting the others. Jesus told them, don't neglect the tithe. You take it up, you don't subtract it. By the way, a tithe is a great place to start. Old Testament, they gave 10% under the law. I believe the least we can do is 10% under grace, knowing what we know. There's just a clear principle here of giving when it comes to commitment. Commitment gives to God financially. Commitment is generous toward the Lord and his house. That's what we see all over scripture. You can't get away from it. And by the way, it wasn't just for the people. All you people, you need to give. Us leaders, no, we don't need to get. No, the leaders and the people. Look at this, verse 38. The priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes. They tithed as well, the leaders, to the house of, the, of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. First, you see accountability with the son of Aaron with, this, with the Levites. So there were safeguards in place with the leadership. So they stayed above reproach when it came to finances, when the tithes came in. Then you see the people in ministry were not exempt from giving. The Jews brought a tenth of their produce to the Lord to support the Levites. The Levites, in turn, gave a tenth to the priests to support them. So the message was the same for the leaders as well as the people. There were no two sets of rules, two sets of books. It was everybody together, the leaders and the people, giving to God. Now, I want to tell you right now, and you need to know this, that I'm a giver. You need to know that. I practice what I preach. Carla and I, from the moment we got married as husband and wife, have faithfully tied and more so to the Lord. And we have never not at least tithed, ever, in our married life of over 20 years. I want you to understand that. 19 of those years here to the church. I don't say that to impress you. I say that to assure you that your senior pastor practices what he preaches. And you need to know that. I don't play by two sets of rules. They were obligated to give. They practiced tithing. They were committed people. So they financially supported God's house. Look at verse 39. The sons of Israel, the sons of Levi, shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers and the singers. Say this last phrase with me. Thus we will not neglect the house of our God. Say it again. Thus we will not neglect the house of our God. Now, they were bringing in grain and oil. I just want to tell you right now, don't put any grain or oil in the offering plate. 
Okay, don't, don't do that. This was an agrarian society, obviously. It was a little different than today. But they did not neglect the house of God. In other words, get this. Not giving to God's house was seen as neglecting God's house. Some of you have neglected the house of God for so long because you never give. Not giving is a sign of spiritual neglect. Now, the temple there was built about 80 years earlier. I want you to understand, it's one thing to build it, it's another thing to maintain it. It is one thing to build it, it's what? It's another thing to maintain it. There's a lot to maintain on this campus for God's glory when it comes to building, when it comes to the structure itself and the upkeep and bills, when it comes to the salary of up to 25 people on staff at this church serving here. By the way, not just 25 people on staff, but we have 34 missionaries and their families all over the world that we support. That's, up to, that's close to 60 people that this church supports financially and their families, puts food on our kids' plates, pays their doctor bills, everything else. When you give, you support God's people. Understand that. Not to mention benevolence and pads and food pantry. The prophet Haggai had to rebuke God's people at one time because they cared more for their own homes than God's homes. Haggai chapter one, verse three, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house lies desolate? In other words, they they were upgrading their home and upgrading their kitchens and upgrading their bathrooms and upgrading and moving up in the bigger and better and nicer and newer. Who cares about God's house? Be careful that you do not neglect God's house and only care for your own house. Be careful. Everyone who benefits from God's house should financially support God's house. I'm going to say that again. If you benefit from God's house, you should financially support God's house. A work for all should never rely on the giving of a few. A work for all should never rely on the giving of a few. If you and your family are blessed here, you should give here. If you and your family are encouraged and built up here, you should give here. If you are spiritually fed here, you should give here. Where you're spiritually fed is where you should give. You don't buy lunch at Portillo's today, drive over to Panera and pay. You don't do that. Where you're fed is where you give. And it's nothing to cry about. (laughs) Recommitment is more than talk. Recommitment returns to a life of honor and a life of trust. And recommitment puts its money where its mouth is. Start putting your money where your mouth is. Recommitment, thirdly, signs up to serve. Look at verse 34. These people are serious. They're saying, God, no more games. No more playing around. We want our lives to change. And so we're going to start serving. Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites, the people, so that we might bring it to the house of our God, according to our father's households, at fixed times annually, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. In other words, listen carefully. If you're not, if you're not serving, you're not committed to God. 
You can say you're committed to God, but if you're not serving, you're not committed to God. It just all revolves around you. For these people, service meant volunteering, and volunteering on a rotating basis. They cast lots. And by the way, Lynn Schelling can help you know where to volunteer. Lynn in our church um, is moving into a position of volunteer coordinator to help people understand the needs in our church, the ministries of our church, their gifts, their talents, where they can go. She's going to be stepping down from the office manager position, taking on this volunteer coordinator position. She's still going to be director of Celebrate Recovery, though, as well. Serving meant volunteering. Serving meant supplying. Look at verse 34, the supply of wood. Man, I I love a good fire. Don't you love a good fire? Had a first fire in a fireplace Friday night. Already had kids bringing wood into the garage, man. Wood was important for the temple. It was fire for the altar of burnt offering, and it required steady supply of wood. And Leviticus 6, 12, and 13 said it burned continually all the time. You know what's beautiful about simple wood? The simplicity and the humility of wood taught an important lesson. Everybody can do something in God's house. Everybody can do something in God's house. Just do something in God's house. Service meant everyone with shared responsibility. In verse 34, among the priests, the Levites, and the people. So across the board, involvement, responsibility, ownership, and buy-in. The priests, the Levites, and the people. The people served. And this is biblical. We see it in the book of Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the who? The saints. Why? For the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ. So God makes it very clear even in the New Testament. The clergy, the ministers, the people on staff at a church are not the ones to be doing the serving. Who is to be doing the serving? Who? Turn to the person next to him and say, you, (laughs) you're supposed to serve. That's what God's word teaches, equipping the saints for the work of service. Volunteering, supplying everyone, service meant focus on God's house. Do you realize nine times in eight verses, house of God is mentioned? Verse 32, you can underline it in your Bible. One time. Verse 33, house of God. Verse 34, another time. Verse 35, another time. Verse 36, twice. Verse 37, once. Verse 38, once. Verse 39, once. Nine times in eight verses. House of God, house of God, house of God, house of the Lord, house of God, house of God. House of God deserves the service of the people of God. Help keep the fire of ministry burning. Bring in the wood. Help keep the fire of ministry burning. Carry in the wood. Help keep the fire of ministry burning. Do your part in the house of God. You may say, well, I don't know what I should do, and I don't know where I should plug in, and I don't know where to begin. I already told you, talk to Lynn, our volunteer coordinator. In two weeks, we're going to have a ministry fair. All the ministries of the church will be out in the foyer. Check them out. You can sign up for a class on spiritual gifts, discovering my ministry that will teach you about your spiritual gifts and your talents and where you can serve. You can even go online and do a spiritual gifts analysis online. You can go to Church Growth Institute Spiritual Gifts Analysis. That's the best way to find it, believe it or not. Just Google that right there. Church Growth Institute Spiritual Gifts Analysis. And you can do an online testing for your spiritual gifts. 
volunteering, supplying, everyone involved, focus on God's house. Verse 34 again, according to our father's households. In other words, households were involved in serving. Get your family involved. Teach and model service for your kids. Serve along with your kids. My kids have all been involved in serving in this church. They usually have helped teach the younger children, whether it was in Awana or youth ministries or working soundboards or whatever. Get your kids involved. Teach them to serve and not just serve themselves. Service meant schedule. Fixed times annually. In other words, they took the time. They scheduled it. They got on a calendar. Get on the nursery calendar. Get on the usher schedule. Get on the cafe schedule. Say, I'm going to set this out. I'm going to do it. I'm going to follow through. It's time to serve. Get on the schedule. Use your time and use your talents for God. That's what commitment looks like. Just don't talk about being committed. Show that you are committed and return to a life of honor and trust and put your money where your mouth is and sign up and serve. And then one other thing we see in verse 35 through 37, recommitment puts God first. It puts God first. And for some of us here today, we need to really start saying, God, you haven't been first and you need to be first. Verse 35, the first fruits Again, first fruits. Verse 36, our firstborn of our sons, our cattle. Again, firstborn of our herds. Verse 37, first of our dough. Five times. First, 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 first. God is making a very clear point. You know what it is? He wants to be first. He deserves to be first, not a close second. God deserves to be first in my life. God deserves to be first in your life, first in every area of our life, from our finances to our family. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from what? The first of all your produce. You give to God first, not second. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with wine. He says, trust me on this. I'm going to provide for you. Do you want to see God at work in your life? Then start trusting him. And invite him back into your life by obeying him and trusting him. That's where commitment starts. Matthew 6.33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Some of you are so worried and you're uptight and you're anxious about everything in your life. You know why? Because you're not focused on God. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, That's all you got to do. And he promises to take care of everything else. When you're all anxious and you're all uptight, it's a sure sign that you're not seeking God first. Because when you seek him first, you're saying, God, it's all yours. You're first in my life. You've promised to take care of everything. I don't have to worry about anything. Invite him back in by trusting him and by obeying him and by seeking him first. And that's recommitment. Say it with me. Recommitment, what does it do? It returns to a life of honor. It puts its money where its mouth is. It signs up to serve, and it puts God first. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time this morning in your word. And Lord, for some here today, they've never come to know you as their Savior. And I pray for them right now.
heads are bowed and eyes are closed, that may be you in this place. You want God in your life, but you don't know where to begin. You need forgiveness of your sins. You may say, Scott, that's me. I need God. I need forgiveness. Where do I start? I would encourage you right now, just in the quietness of your heart, to call out to God in faith. To place your faith in Him. Just use words like these in the quietness of your heart. Just say these words and mean them. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Lord, I need you. Please forgive me of all my sin. I place my faith in you to save me. I can't save myself. Forgive me of all my sin and save me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.